Paul here is going to change his focus a little bit. He's been, we've seen the last several weeks, talking about coming alive in Christ. Uh, mentioning how we, prior to our faith in Christ, were dead in our sins. We were unresponsive and incapable of resuscitating ourselves. That's part of what deadness means. But in that situation, God, by His grace, gave us life. And so this whole theme that we've seen in verses 1 through 10 has been about emphasizing what we would have been without Christ in contrast to what we are and who we are because of Christ. Now Paul is going to apply some of this to a different circumstance. He's going to begin to talk about relationships within the church. And it's not coincidental that the first thing that comes out of Paul's mouth when he's done talking about grace is about relationships. Because when we get our vertical relationship with the Lord right, it necessarily and immediately has implications for our horizontal relationships with other people. And so the Bible is always telling us that the love of God and the love of brother, the love of wife, the love of husband, love of children, it's all interrelated. You can't have one thing happening without the other. So Paul's talked about our gracious, vertical relationship with the Lord, and now he's going to talk about the implications that has for our relationships with others. With others. In chapter 2 specifically, he's going to talk about Jews and Gentiles, who were the major two people groups in the early church, and they did not get along very well together. And so Paul's going to have some things to say to them. So let's read it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11, and I'll go down. I, I think on your bulletins you have it printed to like 14, but I want to read 15 as well. Therefore, re remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth, so he's talking primarily to the Gentiles now, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. You were called uncircumcised by the Jews. That was a mark of derision. You uncircumcised. It was kind of a pejorative term, negative. We're the circumcised, you're the uncircumcised. You don't find a lot of people bragging about that today, but back then it was a big deal. <laughs> I'm blushing. <laughs> it gets worse. That done in the body by the hands of men. <laughs> okay, that's in there as well. Moving on to verse 12. <clears throat> Remember that at that time you who were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hoping with God in the world, you were that. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Our peace, the peace of Jews and Gentiles, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. How did he do it? He did it by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself, to create right in himself. Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, Jews and Gentiles. One new race, one new humanity. Thus making peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, I, I feel like this material here that we're, we're going to be covering for the next little bit is, is vitally important. And um, 
I just pray that your spirit would be here to energize it, to give it life, and to give it truth, and to confront us, Lord. And if there are ways that we need to change in our behavior, our attitudes, Lord, I pray that you'd make those clear to us, and use this word to do it, Lord. Give us the courage to hear boldly the areas we need to hear, Lord. Give me the courage to say boldly the things I need to say. But most of all, Lord, give it life, because if it's just my words, it's, it's utterly useless and futile. Let your spirit be present here, we pray. Amen. Amen. The background of this passage is this. And bad news is that in first service, I never got beyond talking about the background. The good news is that it's pretty good, so hang with it. But uh, I, I think this is the background of the sermon that I was going to preach today, which will be preached next week. But the material is... Uh, is that bragging if I say it's pretty good? Hang with it. I mean, it's, it's, the content of it is very important. The background of this passage is the conflict between the Gentiles and the Jews that occurred in the early church. Here's why there was a conflict. Israel, as you know, as most of you know, was called by God in the Old Testament to be a distinct and special kind of people. You find this theme over and over and over again in the Old Testament. God chose, he tells us in De- Deuteronomy 6, for no particular reason, God chose the Jews. It wasn't because they were stronger or better or more mighty or more anything than other nations. He just chose the Jews. I don't know why, but he chose the Jews. To be a special people, a separate people, a distinct people, a people for himself. A unique kind of crowd. And he told them to walk a certain way and to talk a certain way and to have a certain kind of attitude and to have a certain kind of lifestyle. And he gave them all sorts of kind of strange things like circumcision to set them apart. He didn't want them blending in with the rest of the world. Sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we come to a mistaken conclusion, and it's one that some Jews themselves came to. And that is that this distinctness, this uniqueness, this peculiarity, the Bible calls it, be a peculiar people, we get the impression that this meant that God only liked the Israelites. That they were His love and nobody else. That God liked them and He didn't like anybody else. That they were going to heaven and nobody else was. And He only, he only operated in Israel and He operated nowhere else. We get that impression. Because the Bible is written to the Jews and, and to those who are in a special covenant with God. So it only talks about what God does with the Jews. But it doesn't mean that God wasn't active in other places. And it certainly, certainly doesn't mean that God didn't love other people outside of the Israelites. In fact, here's the point I want to make. The distinctness of the Jews, the uniqueness of Judaism... The main purpose of that distinctness was to reach out to the world and to have something distinct and unique to offer the rest of the world. God always had a heart for everybody. It wasn't that he didn't love the Assyrians and the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Malachites and the Hittites and the Termites and the Bittites and all the other ites that are there. I don't know why. They always... We lost the ites along the way. We don't say the Irishites. We just say Irish. And we don't say the Scottishites. We just say the Scottish. But back then, everything had to have an ite on it. Um, I'm surprised they didn't call them Jewishites. Now that I think about it. But that's not very important. So God loved them. It wasn't that he didn't care about them. He says to Abraham, who's the father of all, of all the Jews, okay, all the Jews descended from Abraham. And he says to Abraham, 
Through your seed, I want to bless the entire world. All the nations of the world will be blessed. And the people will be as the stars of heaven. This isn't a a you thing, and it's not a Jewish-Israeli thing. This is a world thing. But God always operates from the particular to the general, from from the small to the universal. And so a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So he wants to first train a people to follow him, and then he wants them to spread that good news throughout the world. He wants to begin to spread the truth of who he is to their neighbors. But God always loved them, the, the, the neighbors of Israel, the Amalekites and the rest of the ites. He was concerned about them. In fact, we know enough from Scripture to see that he was active in their cultures, doing whatever he could do to bring out of their paganism something redeemable. And once in a while, you even read in the Bible, though it's written primarily to Jews, and so it doesn't deal a lot with how God's operating in other cultures, you find enough that suggests that God is sometimes very present in these other cultures. You find a Melchizedek, for example. He comes out of nowhere. He's not a Jew. He doesn't know anything about Judaism. He's a pagan. But Abraham, we find in Genesis 14, pays his tithes of this battle he just had. He pays 10% of it to, to uh, Melchizedek because he was such a righteous man. He, 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 he somehow arrived at the knowledge of the true God on his own. The Bible tells us that God, when people are separated apart from, from uh, the covenant of God, God judges them and works with them according to their own light and according to what they will receive. We sometimes get the impression that God, in all these other people, they were just created and they never had a chance to go to heaven and they're all just going to hell and it just doesn't seem very fair, does it? But the Bible doesn't say that. It, it just presents them as being outside of the covenant that God had with Israel. But the reason God had a special covenant with Israel is so that God could use them to be priests and servants, to reach out to their pagan cultures because He wants to be glorified by them too. He wants them to come to a knowledge of the grace and the love and the power and the holiness of the true God, something that they're not likely to get on their own. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law in in Exodus, he was a a pagan who who was lifted up as having a great faith. Job was a pagan who was lifted up as having a great faith. And there are others. The point of this is that God's heart, God's compassion, God's intent was always universal. And God wanted the Jews to be distinct and separate. But he wanted them to be distinct and separate so that they would have something to offer everybody else. Now the Jews failed in this vocation. God elected them to be special, but special for a particular vocation to the world. And the Israelites often failed in this. They failed in one of two ways. On the one hand, many times the Jews did not want to keep their distinctness. The Israelites didn't want to keep their uniqueness. It's kind of uncomfortable not being like everybody else. It's kind of uncomfortable not having the same religion as everybody else. It's kind of uncomfortable not having the same belief system and moral codes as everybody else. It's kind of uncomfortable being circumcised when everyone else is uncircumcised. And so it creates kind of a tension. And some Jews said, look it, this distinctness stuff is just kind of uncomfortable, and so let's get rid of it. And there was one segment of Judaism that was always trying to compromise their distinctness so so that they'd fit in better with their culture. And they'd adapt pagan gods from these other cultures. They wouldn't ever just totally throw out Yahweh, but they'd want to include their neighbor's gods. And God's constantly having to say to them, you guys, there's no other god but me. You're to worship me and none else. You're to follow my ways and none else. But there were those who would want to compromise it. And they lose their vocation because they're not distinct enough from their neighbors. But there was a second way that Israel failed. 
And this is what really gives rise to the problem in Ephesians chapter 2. Some Jews really like their distinctness. And I don't want to give the impression that all the Jews in ancient Israel fell into one of these two groups. Many of them walked in the way that God wanted them to walk. But these are the two major areas that Israel fell into. One it was compromise, compromising their distinctiveness. But the other one was to completely get off on their own distinctiveness. And what happened to many within Israel is that they became very prideful of the fact that God chose them. They lost the true insight that they were chosen for a vocation. And that vocation was to reach out to others. But instead of having that, what they had was sort of a prideful, self-contained receptacle of God's blessing. And instead of sharing the goods with the rest of the world, they kind of started to hoard it for themselves. And they began to feel very proud of the fact that they weren't like the other pagan neighbors and they were holier than the other pagan neighbors and they felt special because of that. And they got to really begin to emphasize that. And circumcision, which started off as simply a sign, simply a sign of the fact that we're supposed to be different than our pagan neighbors, it became sort of a criteria, a judgment standard. And you look down on the uncircumcision, and they even began to call them that, you uncircumcision. And that was a real insult for them. David, when he confronts Goliath, the first thing he says is, you uncircumcised Gentile. I'm sure Goliath didn't know what he was talking about, like, Well, of course I'm uncircumcised. What else? But to David, that was like a supreme insult. In your face. And then he threw the rock in his face. But they had this judgmental kind kind of thing to them. They really started getting off on this. We are not like our pagan neighbors. And instead of reaching out, they began to push away. Instead of sharing the blessing, they began to hoard the blessing. Approaching the 2nd and 1st century B.C., leading up to the time of Christ... A real wall of hostility developed between the Gentiles and the Jews. Some within Judaism began to really look down on the Gentiles. They began to see them as vile, subhuman creatures. Some did. They began to say things like, the reason God created the Gentiles, rather than reaching out to them and offering them something of of, of Yahweh's love, they saw them as created for the sole purpose of fueling hell. That's... That's why God created the Gentiles. He needs somebody to keep hell burning. They said stuff like that. There was a law that was passed in some quarters of Judaism that if you saw a a Gentile woman giving birth and having trouble giving birth so that she might even die, you were not allowed to help her. Because to help a woman give birth to a Gentile is to further defile the world. Tremendous barriers set up. There's a story told about Rabbi Eliezer about a Gentile woman who came begging to let him into the covenant of Israel because she saw that they had the truth and the story. It's found in the Mishnah. The story is that he slammed the door on her face and said, no, you by virtue of your birth can never be a part of the covenant of Israel. And that was kind of seen as as a model of keeping your separateness, your distinctness. There were rules about not eating with Gentiles, not fellowshipping with Gentiles. And in the temple in Jerusalem, they had a wall. It was called the dividing wall of separation. And Gentiles could come in to Judaism to this degree. They could come into the outer court, but they could never go into the inner court. Never. And even to get into the outer court, the males had to be circumcised. And they had to take on other Jewish customs, which meant that there were very few male converts to Judaism. Uh, You can figure out why. But, but that's, that's the attitude they had. 
And what happens is instead of seeing themselves as servants of the world, they saw themselves as judges over the world. And instead of being priests that come underneath people and try to bring them to the, to the living water, they began to just see themselves as being better than everybody else, superior to everybody else. And as the guardians of the water that they alone can protect. And it drove God kind of crazy. Listen to this. You see this universal love of God in Isaiah 55. He says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. All of you. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. And eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the riches of the harvest. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. See, I have made my servant David a witness to the peoples. The word there is goyim, the Gentiles. I have made my servant David a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely, he's telling this to Israel, surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel, for He has endowed you with splendor. I'm going to bless you, Israel. I'm going to pour out my splendor upon you. Why? So you can just sit around and feel special? No. So that the other nations are going to be attracted to you. So that they'll see the truth of who I am by the way I bless you. And then the Lord says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That verse is a lot of times quoted by people when a tragedy happens. You know, your your kid gets killed, or you find out you have cancer, or something, and and people try to console you, and sometimes they say, quite inappropriate, I I, I suspect, but they say, well, you know, God has a reason, and they try to find a purpose for it. God God knows what He's doing, and uh, His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our, 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 our... our ways. He knows what he's doing. And in the end, God gets, gets blamed for everything. But the purpose of the verses, I want you to see this. Whatever else you think about that application of them, that's not how they're applied in this passage. When God says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts, what he's talking to is the Israelites. And he's saying, you guys think I'm just about blessing you? Uh-uh. I'm about blessing everybody. I got a passionate love for everybody. Every land, all those people you look down upon and you despise and you find so disgusting and you find so repulsive, I got a heart for them. I want to reach out to them. My reason for blessing you is so that ultimately I can bless them. And you don't get it. You don't get it. You're walled into your little self-contained righteousness, but you got to know that my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. I've got the universal love that you lack. I've got a heart for all the people that you lack. And God was constantly trying to get them out of their comfort zone to begin to do what they were called to do, reach out to the peoples of the world. Instead, however, those who were meant to be conduits of God's blessing, thoughts of God's blessing, through whom the blessings of God would flow to all the peoples of the world, they end up being self-contained buckets of God's blessing, sharing it with no one, and losing, in fact, pushing away the very people they were supposed to be calling. They failed. And that's what sets up the problem in Genesis or in Ephesians chapter 2. Because when Christ comes, he calls the Jews and he calls the Gentiles, and you're supposed to be in the church together. You know what? There's a lot of hostility that needs to be overcome. A tremendous amount of racial tension. There's also all sorts of other barriers that we're going to need to talk about. We're going to talk about those next week. 
What I want to do this morning is simply draw a simple lesson from the errors of Israel. Because unless my perception is really mistaken, and sometimes it is, but, but on this one I think i got a handle on it. I think the church is prone to the same kind of errors Israel was prone towards. The church, like Israel, is called to be distinct. The church has one and the same vocation as Israel had. We're called to be separate. We're called to be blessed. We're called to be holy. We're called to be distinct. We're called to be recognizably not meshed in with the rest of the world, just like Israel was. But like Israel, that's not to be a special, aren't we great kind of a thing. The purpose of the distinctness is to be a beacon of light in a world of darkness to attract others to the person of Jesus Christ. To say with our life and to say with our words and to say with our lifestyle, listen, anyone who's thirsty can come and drink. Anyone who's hungry can come and eat. Come and buy food without money. But we sometimes forget that. We sometimes lose that. And we do it in, in sometimes in just the same way that the Israelites do. On the one hand, you can have, and we do have, significant portions of Christianity that follow that segment of Judaism that compromises their distinctness. That kind of Christianity that wants to be, wants so badly to please everyone that they end up having nothing to offer anyone. You can get some quarters of Christianity where you don't want to be uncomfortable, you don't want to buck heads with the world, you don't want to cause any problems, you want to fit in, you want to mesh right, and you don't want to offend anybody. And you end up buying into, or at least incorporating, the gods of this age so that you better mesh with the culture. So if the culture believes, it, it, you end up preaching the culture, you end up Christianizing the culture. So if the culture believes, take, a, take a, any kind of issue you want. Gun control. Can't tell you how many sermons on gun control I heard when I was at Yale. They loved to preach on that. That was the big one back then. If the culture's for gun control, we're for gun control. Praise the Lord, God's for gun control. And for all I know, he might be. I don't, I don't know. But that's not the gospel. You end up ch- turning the church into sort of a good, do, do-gooder social agency that's got nothing distinctive to stand for, nothing distinctive to preach, nothing distinctive to offer people. If the culture's for moral relativism, we're for moral, to- moral relativism. And if the culture's for gay rights, we're for gay rights. And if the culture is, they says every way is equally okay, we say every way is equally okay. And if the culture says that premarital sex is natural and normal, then we say premarital sex is natural and normal. Only we give a kind of Christian angle on it. I'm not kidding. I, I don't want to bash my alma mater. My alma mater. I'm from the East Coast, you understand? My alma mater, but I'm going to bash it. I learned a lot at Yale, grade school, yeah, nice. Okay, fine, but it had some major problems. One of which is that it, I think, largely expressed this kind of Christianity. And they bought into sort of left-wing ideology in kind of a mindless way and turned it into the gospel. And made that the content of the gospel. And I remember one time in a class... Sitting in a class in theological ethics taught by this uh, fairly left-wing nun. And um, uh, one of the issues we discussed, these future ministers of mainline denominations, was can extramarital sexual affairs ever be Christianized? And we thought on this and reflected on it and kind of looked at what the Bible says. No, we really didn't, but... But what Buddha said, and you know, all these other kind, we did, we did this kind of game that I never understood. But what we, we, we finally came to the conclusion, or at least a large portion of the people came to the conclusion that, yes, 
Sometimes in certain situations, it's the compassionate thing to do. It's the loving thing to do. It's the godly thing to do. They have extramarital affairs. And what happens in this kind of thinking is that you come so close to, to the rest of the world that you water down the good news to the point where it's no news. It sounds like the same news that anyone else would have taught. It's just that you have a different label on it. And in other circles, you have such a concern not to offend people that you water down everything that's distinctive about you. You water down, you water down your preaching because you want to make it nice and not offensive. And you water down your worship because you want to make it nice and not offensive. And you water down your Bible interpretation because you want it to be nice and not offensive. And you water down the songs you sing because you don't want them to be offensive. You want them to be nice and, and, and comfortable to the people around you. You know that there's two denominations at least that have made, have now mandated the use of a hymnal where they've taken out all reference to the blood of Christ because it's just too gory for modern sensibilities. We don't want to offend people. And they've taken out all reference to military hymns like Onward Christian Soldiers because it promotes violence. I'm serious. The trouble is, the trouble is this. And I don't even question the sincerity of the people who are doing this. But the fact of the matter is, is that when you downsize your distinctiveness to that degree, you've lost anything distinctive to say, anything to offer people. And in the end, you stand for nothing. There's nothing unique about you. Sometimes the church fails because it compromises. The fact of the matter is that the Bible does call us to be separate. That's just the way it is. New Old Testament and New, separate, New, New, New Testament. Be a separate people. Come out from among them. Touch not the unclean thing. There's supposed to be a distinctiveness there. God wants a distinct people who have got a distinct kind of love and a distinct kind of care and a distinct kind of compassion and a distinct kind of freedom from the kind of stuff that enslaves other people. And they've got a distinct kind of walk and a distinct kind of talk and a distinct kind of belief system. And they don't just buy into the Pied Piper of the age and buy into the brainwashed doctrine of of what, what the rest of the culture is saying. He wants a distinct people, something unique about them. But the purpose for the distinctness is not to feel righteous and holy. The purpose of the distinctness is to provide a lost world an alternative. You can be free from something. You can live in a different way with a different kind of life, with a different kind of Lord. And it's to attract people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads to the second kind of problem that we have in Christianity. We're prone, like the, like the Israelites, to fall into the same quagmire. Sometimes in the area of compromise... Oftentimes, and this is more common in conservative circles, we fall into the opposite extreme of falling in love with our distinctness and being distinct and being separate for all the wrong reasons. And we lose the perspective that the whole point of the thing is to bring Christ to other people and bring other people to Christ. We lose that focus. The church I was originally saved in they were really big on separation. We out-separated all the other separatists. We loved it. We didn't like anybody but ourselves. I mean, we, we really were separate. And we were really big on the distinctness and the holiness stuff and, and whatever. And, and uh, I, can, I can spot one of them a mile away. So can Dave and Terry. So can a lot of us who have been in it. You know, we, just, we, we can see them. Because they're distinct, they're unique, they are a peculiar people, they are very peculiar people. And they, they uh, you know, the women never cut their hair, so they wear it up in a big bun, you know, and, and that's distinctive. 
and, and uh, they think it's ungodly to cut your hair. And so they're not like all the other people who cut their hair. They've got huge hairdos. And, and they wear, they wear, uh, the women wear uh, dresses all the time because it's ungodly to wear pants. And it can be 44 below zero, and they've got dresses on. You can tell them. And they don't wear any makeup, and they don't wear any jewelry, and, and they, they kind of have a certain walk to them. They look about 14 years older than they really are, and, and they always look a little bit angry. Yeah, it's like you can tell. You can spot them. And you know what? If God calls you to wear dresses when it's 44 below zero, I don't care as long as you're a woman. If you're a guy, I'm going to have problems with you. But if you're, go ahead and wear it. And you don't want to wear makeup. You don't want to, That's all fine. I don't see a thing wrong with a person deciding that God wants them to do that. I, it's a little strange, I think. But if God told you to do it, do it. The problem here is not how they look. The problem is the reason why they look that way. And see, here it's not about telling people, hey, I got food for you hungry people. I got water for your thirsty people. It's not about showing Christ's attractiveness in your life because there's not a whole lot of that's attractive there. It's not like somebody says, boy, can I wear a dress like that and I wish my hair could get like that. It's not the kind of thing that really is a magnet to Jesus Christ. But they feel great about it. They, they, they understand witnessing to be, to come down to mean being noticed for being different. But see, witnessing is about attracting people to the love and the joy and the peace and the grace and the splendor of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that attitude maybe is kind of extreme, but actually I think the attitude itself, the application maybe is extreme, but the attitude itself I think is quite pervasive in evangelical culture. In evangelical culture where... We maybe don't have that kind of rigidity, but sometimes there's the same mindset. We're distinct, and we're not like those people. We're different from those people, and God loves us, but not those people. And we can turn our Christianity into sort of a holiness club. Just like the Israelites turned their their whole Judaism into an anti-Gentile club and an anti-pagan club, we can sometimes turn the church into, if we're not careful, into a nice ironclad sort of subculture that's simply an anti-world club. And we can have our own little jargon, our own little religious jargon and our own little religious cliches and our own little religious meetings and our own little religious dress and our own little religious radio stations and we read our own little religious books and we have our own little religious groups of friends and we got our own little religious system of do's and we got our own little religious system of don'ts. And if anyone wants to join us, that's fine, but here's, here's the requirements. You've got to look like us and talk like us and listen to the same music as us and like the same things as us. And we've got our own little system of political correctness. You've got to line up. You know, it's just understood that if you're a real Christian, this is how you're going to believe even politically or whatnot. And we strive for a kind of uniformity all around the, the, uh, the lot. And the end result is that we build a tremendous fortress that makes us feel very secure on the inside and serves very well to keep people distant on the outside. And we lose. Somehow in the process of the whole thing, we can easily lose. It's just so comfortable we can easily lose the whole whosoever will thrust of Isaiah 55. Whoever's hungry, come and eat. Whoever's thirsty, come and drink. No money, fine, come and get it anyways. No ifs, ands, or buts, as you are, come and eat, come and drink. We lose that when we put 44 and a half different cultural barriers that people got to jump through to be one of us. And it's the very same problem that the Jews faced in the Old Testament. It's kind of a pride thing. Sometimes the way we, we conduct ourselves has this implication. And I'm talking about the church at large now. 
And hear this in the balanced way that it's intended. But sometimes when we get on sin campaigns, all right, sin campaigns, the way we do it is such that we lose the outward evangelical thrust that we're supposed to have by our distinctness. I mean, we can get so eloquent and so good and so loud and so forceful at preaching against sin. And there's a place for that. But we can get so good at that that somehow we cloud, we confuse the message that the reason we're doing it is because we're for sinners. And we love sinners. And we're all sinners. And we want this place filled with sinners. Sinners are welcome. If you're hungry, you can come. If you're thirsty, you can drink. No money, that's fine. None of us have got any money when it comes to buying this kind of thing, but it gets lost. We can become so good at preaching against adultery that we lose the message that we love and God loves adulterers, and we invite adulterers all over the place to come and fill out this congregation because we've got something that you really would like to taste, some, some drink you'd really, that would really quench your thirst, some healing that can come to your life. But instead, we become sort of an anti-adultery club. Or we can become so eloquent in a campaign against homosexuality that we somehow lose the focus that we're in love with homosexuals and God loves homosexuals and and we turn ourselves into sort of an anti-homosexual club. And the only reason we say anything against it is because we're for the homosexual. Or the abortionist or you name it. We lose, we we can lose the message and, and, and this is often how it's perceived. That we're not in love with the abortionist and the woman who's had the abortion and the baby who's been aborted. We love the whole thing. And we want them all to come and eat and come and drink. Whosoever will, no money, come and have it. Instead, we've got walls and barriers. We've become an anti-club. You see, what's got to define the church? Listen to this now. We're called to be distinct. I really believe that. Called to be unique. We shouldn't just be blending in and buying into everything the world says. But the purpose of the uniqueness is to reach out to build bridges, to love with an unconditional love, to express a radical kind of grace, to have an unusual kind of love that just isn't around anywhere else. That's attractive. That's a great way to be distinct. Be holy by being loving. And to have a particular kind of a joy that isn't just found in the world, and a particular kind of peace, and a particular kind of freedom from the kind of stuff that enslaves people. Be moving into the holiness of God, into the love of God, and the joy of God, and the peace of God, because when you are that, you are by your very life, as well as your words, a beacon, an attractive beacon in this world that is starving for what you've got. But the purpose of it is to attract those who go without it. It's not to build up a nice wall with a bunch of mirrors so we can look at ourselves and feel really good about the whole thing. What defines the church is not what we are against, it's what we are for, amen? And what we are for is Jesus Christ. And what we are for is people. Whatever class, whatever race, whatever kind of sin problems they're in, we are for them. That's what defines us, is it? It's not a kind of anti-club at all. It's a pro-club. It's a pro-Jesus Christ, pro-person, pro-saving people kind of club in fact i don't even want to call it a club yes there's distinctness but the purpose of it is not to beat up people or to look down on people or to judge people to condemn people that makes us feel better when we do it but that's not what we're called to do we're called to have an attractive kind of distinction so hungry people can see can we develop in our life i just want to leave you with this challenge A mindset and an attitude that is like the kind Jesus had towards his world. 
You know, Jesus, I, when, when he looked around him and he related, I don't see anything that, that tells me that he saw people in terms of their culture, in terms of their race, in terms of their gender, in terms of their social rank, in terms of their vileness. It wasn't like he, saw, he had a little yardstick and he could go around and see, you know, okay, yeah, you're about here, you're about there. Because that kind of thing was totally irrelevant to him. I don't think he saw Syrophoenicians, and I don't think he saw Greeks, and I don't think he saw Jews. I don't think he saw adulterers or non-adulterers or homosexuals or non-homosexuals. What he saw, and the most important thing that we've got to see, is people who are hungry, people who need what you've got. And one of the reasons why God gave it to you is so that you could now give it to them. And all that amounts to is this. Coming off of Ephesians chapter 2, where we learned that we were dead in sin, the only thing we do, it's just simple. We're simply dead people, spiritual corpses that have been given life. And now we want to tell other corpses that we found a place where they can get life. Because every corpse is hungry for life. Hey, you know what? Over here. We're just a bunch of beggars, a bunch of street people, begging for food, and we found, we found a free lunch. That's all it comes down to me. And all we want to do is just whistle. I wish I could do this. Dave, can you, Dave, can you give me one? Yeah. We just go, shit. Sorry. Shit. I say, you guys, we got a free lunch. Bunch of fellow despairs who found a place where there's joy. And a bunch of fellow worry warts who found a place where there's some peace. A bunch of fellow sinners who found a place where there's forgiveness. And our life is supposed to be about saying, hey, over here. Here's where it is. St. Francis said, preach the gospel wherever you are, and if you have to, use words. <laughs> Amen. Everything we do. Can we, can we see, you know, the most important thing about your neighbor is not how much they drink and how, how maybe how much they swear or, or whether they're lesbian or not. That, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that they're hungry and you found a place. And we're called not just to hoard it, but to spread it, to invite people. Walk with that awareness, that kind of consciousness. The purpose is to build bridges and to touch others. Father, in your name, I ask, Lord, that you would right now be impressing on us what our vocation is. You do love us. We, we feel that, Lord. And in that sense, we are special. But our salvation is not just for us, Lord. It, it's a vocation. It's a calling. You've given us a job description. You want us to be priests of the world. And, and some of us can do that with words pretty good. Others of us, Lord, just need to do it with our life. But we pray, Lord, that you would make yourself attractive through us. That's our highest life ambition. Make yourself attractive in your love and in your grace through us, Lord God. And preserve us and protect us, Lord God, from pride and self-righteousness and haughtiness that would put barriers up in front of people, Lord God. Convict us of that, Lord that we could come down to the level of the people that we're trying to win and see eye to eye and simply invite them to the place where there is life. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. The altar is open this morning. If, if you uh, have anything that you would like to pray about, maybe you're here this morning and you've never made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, I encourage you this morning to do that.